Hello and welcome back to Sink or Swim, literally the only podcast on the internet where two straight cis men talk about movies and TV shows. <laughs> I'm being pedantic, we, we talk about music too. I'm Prentice and uh, with me is my good mate Jules. How you doing? Hello there. Yeah, you alright? Yeah, I'm fine. I was marvelling at the new, the new improved uh, type 2 you were doing at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't expecting that. That threw me off guard a little bit. I nearly came in early because I was like, "You it to me," because you're like, "Well, I just wanted to make it clear what sort of, um, you know, what kind of like corner of the market we'd we'd managed to corner, you know, like." But yeah, anyway. So how you doing, man? Uh, we get, well, I'm one of those days. Half my notes for my for my topic have disappeared, so that's going to be fun later. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I, it's a film that I'm really confident with, so it should be fun. I'm excited to to forget the second episode of this done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, if you listen to the first episode, we did do a news segment at the start. Um, we've decided to nix that just because of the way we record and the way the news cycle works and stuff like that. But we're uh, just going to have a little bit of a chat really about things that pop into our head. The first oh, thing... Oh, I also, before we start, as you t- recap in last week, I want to give a shout out to everyone, the, the, the dozens of people who have been, or the dozen rather, who, <laughs> who have uh, li- who listened and were supportive and both supportive. We do appreciate that. This episode's going to be very different, I feel, um, just because like of the films we've chosen are very different. We wanted to show that we're not just like Marvel fanboys. <laughs> so as Prentice was saying, like we, we're not going to do strict news as in these are the details of the new project coming up, because by the time we release this, you, you wouldn't, you'll know way before you listen to this. But I think two things are kind of big for me at the moment. Well, they're not big for me, but um, Atlanta has started filming season three and four. And very exciting. Very exciting because it's both of us basically. It's, it's my favorite television show of all time, and it's one of Prentice's up there. For it's Prentice. my second. It's Prentice's second. Yeah. Uh, but what what is really funny about it? Not only that it's great that it's coming back, but they are filming in Stoke Newington. And I Prentice alerted me to this earlier. Like he he found something on, online about it, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about Donald Glover, the Keith Stanfield, Daisy Beats, and Brian Tyree Henry, and all. I guess that's like, probably some cool cameos or whatever. And the director, all just like chilling in Stoke Newington. It's just like, I just feel like two worlds that should never come together. Yeah. I, I mean, so I think Stoke Newington's not, it's not exactly like Didsbury, but it's like, it's still like, it's still kind of very. It's not, it's not the village of Midsummer. Yeah. Oh, National Atlanta Midsummer Murders crossover. That would be so Midsummer good. motherfucking murders! Oh, yeah, literally. I mean, if I had kind of done that, I wouldn't know, to be fair. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, um, I, could, I can't stop thinking about that. It's just. Because they, if you, you know, slight spoilers for Atlanta, I'm not, not really, but they, this, the third series is going to be set in, I didn't realise it was going to be in England, so that is, that's going to, if there's, if there's an episode set, set in England, that's going to be really cool. I'm really excited for that. Yeah, same. <laughs> Just, like, what their world interprets England as? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I perversely, because, I mean, we know that, like, Atlanta often strays into, like, absurdism and stuff like that. But I feel like Atlanta probably has the potential to portray one of the most realistic looks of the UK out of any American show. Like, I feel like Atlanta is not going to go for the hacky kind of, you know, tea and crumpets with yeah. the queen kind of shit. Like, it's, they're probably going to portray a much more, you know, accurate view of the UK than we've probably seen in most American stuff. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, I, I, that's what I'm expecting. There'll Obviously, there'll be the kind of typical Atlanta absurdism thrown in, but it won't be the kind of hacky shit. Well, yeah, I think it'll be, I think at one at one hand, a bit like Atlanta when it does, you know, that city. It's like on the one hand, it's very, very like people from Atlanta said it's like it's really accurate to like the experience of living there. Mm. But on the other hand, it also takes elements of that and, and flips it to make it absurdist. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to a the realistic side and b what they do when they when they want to do the surrealist Twin Peaksy elements of it. Yeah, what yeah, parts yeah. of British culture they kind of or English culture, they choose to, like, make weird. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's quite easy. You just you just, Definitely. To, you just have to go down any, like, any street. I mean, obviously it's COVID, but out of COVID, you just have to go down any, any major city and, like, past 12 o'clock. And, and it's an absolute uh, gr- graveyard of lunacy. It's yeah. Just, people will, like, stagger in and, like, <laughs> people just come up to you and say the weirdest shit. Hmm. We We're just... probably going to get some interesting commentary on the difference between, kind of, racism in America and racism in the UK. I'm, I'm hoping oh, so, anyway. yeah, that's a good point. I don't know if Donald... Or maybe just throughout Europe. 
well, one thing, uh, a little recommendation quickly is if you if you haven't if you haven't already, um, there's he did a great interview for for GQ with well he interviewed Michaela Cole for GQ um, for her series May I Destroy You um, and like they do talk I think they touch on it a little bit about the difference in in racism and like how that manifests itself and stuff and also how that manifests in the TV industry and film industry yeah so it's something he's thought about but I think be interested to know to what extent he's actually thought about it. Mm. I don't think something America Americans are very self self centered in a way, not like in a traditional sense, but they just kind of their worldview is America yeah. and everything else. So I don't know. And I think Donald is one of those Americans who does have a wider worldview. Mm. But I'd be interested to know how far that, how much he's engaged with like the realities of British racism mm. and, and the ways that it manifests itself in our industries. Yeah, and the other big well, it, it, this isn't going to be news by the time it comes out because it's been in the news cycle for about three years. But the uh, Snyder League Justice Cut is out. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it's been it's been uh, actually well received to be honest, which surprised me a little bit. I I had a sort of pettiness that I wanted it to be shit just because I was like, it's like it's the ultimate epit to me. It's the ultimate epitome of like I'll I'll remake culture. In, we're not mm. even we're not even remaking different things now. We're just remaking the same things again until in, until it's liked. Yeah, it's kind of like I don't I don't have the problem with like, like five years apart as well. Yeah, like I don't have the I don't have some of the problems that other people have with it. Like that it's pandering to like toxic areas of the internet. My problem with it is like from a slightly snobby creative angle. We we don't want to slip into this trap of like art isn't allowed to stand on its own and to fail. Yeah, uh, it needs like things don't have to be good just because you want them to be good. Like you can you can be disappointed by things, and like if we get around the path of if enough people don't like something, we remake it. Kind of takes away that creative that that you know the idea of the you know the creative giving something. Because you made a good point about like you know supply and demand for supply and demand for for you know companies taking what people have been demanding and making it because it's going to make them money and it's gonna it's going to be popular. Yeah. But there's also a point of like that's I don't, I don't know I feel that's 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 a road that I don't really want to go down personally. Like in terms of people, if we're just doing that, if we're just doing that every time, there's a, a little a little bit about like a little sort of enough of a fan base it's like oh, I don't like that. Mm. The kind of that's tough in it. I don't think that will be the case. I think this is a special situation because of the way that the, what surrounded the making of the film, let alone just like the negative reactions to it as well. You know what I mean? Like, the fact that Snyder was making this film and there was these kind of drips and jabs from him about what was going to be in it and stuff. And then obviously, like, obviously he had a horrible family tragedy with his daughter and everything and had to sort of stop making the film. And then Joss Whedon came on. And then loads of drips and jabs came out from the cast about, like, kind of the differences between Whedon and, and Snyder's directorial yeah. style. And we had, like, Ray Fisher come out with his public beef yeah, against Joss Whedon and stuff like that. Yeah, I think yeah. all of this stuff sort of coalesced into a, like, people wanting to see their favourite characters done right and they didn't feel that the Whedon cut did that. I also had, um, actually, on the on the Snyder League Justice cut, there were some interesting things that came out, specifically to more, more on brand with this podcast. It's an interesting thing. Um, Tom Holkenberg, who is Junkie XL, mm-hmm. um, he was originally down to do the music for the... when Zack Snyder was still helming the original Justice League. Mm. And then, because again, not, Joss Whedon fired him, basically. Uh, and got Danny Elfman on board to do the the score that like was released with the film, yeah. and then Zack Snyder's got J- Junkie XL back on, back on to to do the score again, which is interesting. Mm. Um, I, I think yeah, it's quite interesting. Like, very very different from what I know from Junkie XL. It's very different. Like to have Danny Elfman and Junkie XL soundtracking the, uh, scoring the same film seems quite interesting to me. Mm. It streaks of a very different tone, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um... Obviously, I'm stereotyping their work, obviously. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's done stuff... I think him and Danny Elfman also worked on the original Justice League. I could be wrong, but I swear they he has a track on the original Justice League okay. film. And also, he has worked on other things alongside more traditional composers as well, like Deadpool and stuff. Okay. So I don't think this is the first time... I think he was on Batman v Superman. I think Junkie XL and Hans Zimmer both did stuff oh. for Batman v Superman. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't think it's quite the first time, but yeah, it is. It's an interesting, definitely an interesting uh, mix of styles, definitely. And there's no crossover. Mm. I mean, I read an article that was basically like, yeah, there's no crossover here between like what was in the original. Like, I looked at the track listings, different track listings, everything's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different pieces of sync being used, everything. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it, yeah, again, as a kind of film, it's almost a different film. It's not a cut. 
Mm. Like that's the thing; it's not cut. No, it's not. It's called the Snyder. It's called the Snyder Cut. But it's not cut. Mm. It's a different film. Mm. But you're using the same characters. So this week, uh, I'm going to be doing Kill List. Um, yeah, nothing to say about that. No, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm <laughs> waiting with bated breath. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I decided to do Kill List this week because. Um, Ben Wheatley, the director, has a film uh, coming up this year on the 18th of June called In the Earth, which stars Joel Fry, Reese Shearsmith, and Hayley Squires, um, which is a pandemic set horror film. Very. Uh... Bit, I mean, I don't think you need the second word, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, uh, just a bit of background on Ben Wheatley. He's one of my favourite directors, I would say. Um, definitely one of my favourite British directors. Um... He reminds me a little bit of like. I, I, I don't know him at all, I don't really know what his character's like, but for like the vibe I get of him, he's kind of like, uh, he's kind of like film version of Alan Moore. He's like, uh, it gives me a lot of Alan Moore vibes. Yeah, he kind of has that vibe, yeah, they're both from Essex, both big bearded blokes from Essex. Like, like their, like their Wiccan stuff? Yeah, yeah, they like their Wiccan sort of stuff, yeah. I don't know, I mean, I don't think Ben Wheatley goes quite as hard into it, like yeah. he doesn't live it in the yeah. way that Alan Moore does, but yeah. Um, so, um, no, no, it's all right. Yeah. So Ben Wheatley, his previous work includes stuff like um, his first film, Down Terrace, um, uh, Kill List, as, as mentioned, which we're going to be doing. Um, Sightseers, the sort of black comedy starring Alice Lowe and, and a few other sort of notable people. Uh, Field in England, um, which is quite a big film of his. He's done episodes of Doctor Who, um, Ideal. He did the Johnny Vegas sitcom. Yeah, yeah. He's done some comedy stuff for Channel Four. Yeah, he's got he's got quite a broad kind of um, range of work Ben Whaley a lot of kind of satirical dark quite dark and satirical for the most part and he has a couple of muses who he works with a lot like um, Neil Maskell Michael Smiley Alice Lowe like he yeah he's got a few people who crop up in a lot of his work Um, but yeah he's just yeah he's one of my favourite directors I think he's just got a really strong really interesting filmography they're always yeah always very dark and interesting ideas and very satirical and, and kind of I don't know, yeah. But yeah, so we watched Kill List last night. What did, what did you think? Why should I start with it? I, I, I did enjoy it. I was doing the first thing probably is to attach a value judgment. I did enjoy it. I really like, I'm being into like British indie films. Definitely. The I just, I just, I love the aesthetic. I love the tone of them, how they're shot. Everything about them is really kind of what I would call like a distant cut. It's distant, but comforting. Mm. Um, and that film, yeah, it's kind of, it's, uh, I always called it, it's three. You might be the first person to call Kill List comforting. But... I know, but like <laughs> the, the style, like just the style of it, like yeah, yeah, the aesthetic and the stuff. Style, like, I don't know, it's I don't know if it's like a weird parochial vein in me, but I love, I just it's it's an intensely British film, and I always it's quite comforting mm. to me. You can sort of see like every garage you've ever been to, every road you've ever driven on in that film, sort of thing. It's yeah, it's got those kind of very yeah, that very quintessentially kind of run down, kind of urban decay, kind of British aesthetic. I really, I yeah, I think. It's it's like a really it's like like a basically three quarters is a dark comedy like body, body film. I mean, would you call it a comedy? Oh, it's quite funny. It is very funny. It is very funny at moments. But I don't know if I'd call it a comedy film. Yeah, it's got it's got no, very no. funny. It's got very funny dialogue in the way that two mates kind of cracking jokes and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. dirty jokes about their sex lives and all that kind of stuff is. But I don't know if it's a comedy <sighs> film. Yeah, maybe it's not. I, I didn't. Yeah, not straight. Obviously, not straight up. I mean, I, I would describe it as like a. A dark thriller that takes a turn for horror. See, I, a psychological thriller that takes a turn for horror towards the end. Yeah, like I, w- w- interesting for me, like per- on a very personal level, I, I didn't find it that intense up until like the last, maybe like forty minutes. Like, okay. I, I, I actually found it quite a, a nice watch. And by, by the way, forty minutes—that's about halfway through the film. It's, it's a very breezy watch. It's only an hour and a half. So yeah, I mean, it's probably. Uh, so you're saying you probably it, found the last half quite. Yeah. So once, once it sort of moved into the horror element. Sorry, sorry. I've just realised that's a delivery for me. I think. Sorry about that. <laughs> I had a package delivery. <laughs> Sorry, you just, you just, we started our first recording, just went straight, <laughs> straight to the mic. Oh, that was so funny. Uh, yeah. That was uh, such good timing. Getting a delivery, <laughs> getting a delivery mid-podcast completely threw me off. <laughs> I didn't even think about what it's I was doing. It's me up so much. <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, I thought, yeah, 
it's, yeah, it's actually quite cool. This is, although, if I'm going to throw one label on it, horror. Uh, actually, no, I say, I don't know, I mean, you're right, actually, thriller, thriller, psychological thriller, but actually, it has a loads of like, it's almost. To me, it's got three distinct parts in mm-hmm. it. Which Ben Wheatley re- references in his like Film 4 interview oh, does he? Um, that like ran before the film aired on Film 4 for the first time. Yeah. He references the idea that a lot of people have said it's like three films stitched together. But uh, he views it more as like a symmetrical, like one whole kind of symmetrical piece. Yeah. So I view it as like part kitchen sink drama, part maybe crime thriller, part horror film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I find once you once you sort of filled in the gaps to me from those films where like a bit like us that I'm going to talk about once you start dissecting it a little bit spoilers oh for my earth shattering piece like yeah mm. um yeah uh, it, it kind of makes more sense after the fact I don't know yeah 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 no you may be right um so for anyone who basically hasn't seen Kill List basically um Neil Maskell and Michael Smiley play um Gal and Jay who are two uh, ex-soldiers who have basically come back to the UK and uh, Jay, played by Neil Maskell, basically has been out of work for about eight months. Um, There's a recession on it. It's kind of like that late 2000s, early 2010s kind of era in the UK. Um, He hasn't worked in eight months, uh, presumably from PTSD. We sort of get hints at that and and a few other reasons as well. He's struggling to kind of reintegrate back into kind of normal life and stuff like that. And his wife, who's also an ex-soldier from the Swedish military. Um, did I say ex-wife? I didn't say ex-wife. Did I? I meant wife. His wife is from the Swedish military and, and basically sort of pressures him into... Not really pressures, they need the money. And basically him and his mate Jay take up um, job as, a job as hitmen. Um, and so they take a contract from a mysterious man known as the Client and basically leads them into like a kind of really dark and brutal journey across kind of the southeast of the UK where they um, encounter their kind of targets and, and sort of uncover more about the client and, and kind of it plays into elements of Jay's past and Gal's kind of personal life and stuff like that and, and yeah, sort of culminates in quite a horrific fashion. Um, but yeah, so I guess the first thing to talk about in terms of the music, which is quite interesting, is that there's actually quite a lot that's close to home for us uh with this film so uh i i feel i don't know for sure but i feel yeah. like some of this film was set shot in brighton if not all of it you mentioned that because we down it, yeah. terrace was shot in brighton that was and that and ben wheatley lives in brighton uh, i mean that is, yeah and a lot of the areas that appear in the film look like kind of the outskirts of brighton where like you've got the more sort of desolate areas like the kind of industrial parks and sort of the older houses and stuff okay. like that yeah, and, uh, we'll be on something there. So the composer, Jim Williams, was actually a course leader for music performance at the university we went to. Oh! Ben Bryan. Oh, I think I might have some... some... They, they, it got mentioned a few times. Yeah, because they do like to self-promote, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so he's done sessions work for people like Maxi Priest, M People, Terry Hall, Paul Weller. Oh, nice. And he's been part of prolific writing teams like The Matrix, who wrote songs for Katy Perry and Britney Spears. And he's been part of the writing team Swamp, who wrote hits for Natalie and Brulia and Pixie Lot. Oh, um, He's scored TV shows such as Alveda Same Pet, Hotel Babylon, for which he was nominated for an Ivor Novella Award. Uh, nice Lock Stock, the TV show adaptation of the oh, movie. Yeah. Uh, Minder. And he's also composed film uh, scores for films like um, Julia Ducano's Raw, which was that kind of horror film from a few years ago that was quite controversial for its sort of graphic nature. I don't know if you remembered hearing much about I don't it. Think so, it came yeah. out about 2016. It's about a vegetarian girl who goes to like this kind of college and be- uh, veterinary college and discovers that she has a taste for human for, for flesh, basically. Oh, maybe. And it was quite that. gory and grisly. Yeah. Apparently, at like one of the film festivals, it premiered out a few people fainted. Because of some of the scenes oh, and stuff like that. Oh, is there like a lot that. of cannibalism going on? Yeah, I, apparently it's pretty grisly, and, okay. and it was and it, it achieved a level of controversy. But he was nominated for a Caesar Award, which is, I believe, I can't remember. Roman Conquest that. or well, <laughs> <laughs> bad joke. I potentially who's who, I can't remember. Anyway, the Caesar Award was quite a big award, and he was nominated for Best Original Music at the Caesar Awards for his work on Raw. Um, he's done scores for Michael Pierce's Beast and Brandon Cronenberg's Possess- Possessor. Okay. Well, son of son of Cronenberg, Brandon Cronenberg. Oh, that needs to be a film. Son of Cronenberg. <laughs> but yeah, most relevant is to this is his work on Ben Wheatley's first four films: Down Terrace, Kill List, Sightseers, oh, and A Feel in England. He's he's, he, he's he's Ben Wheatley's guy. Yeah, he's done the scores for all of those. So I was doing yeah. some reading on him, and he's dropped references in terms of his influence to the compositions on Hitchcock films, as well as um, composers like Morricone, Schifrin, Jerry Goldsmith, people like that. 
And what I thought was interesting about when he referenced Jerry Goldsmith is that the score for Kill List reminds me of the score for Alien, composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, well, um, that makes total sense then. And yeah, so the score of Kill List reminds me of the score for Alien uh, and Terry Rawlings' work as the sound editor of Alien in the kind of there's this intense drone underneath yeah, yeah. a lot of the music in both films. a lot films. of drone. Yeah, I, that, that was my favourite piece, their favourite parts of the score was yeah. like... It's very tense the whole way through. Like there's yeah. no let up in the, but like that drone is almost like it's quite an oppressive score. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't mm-hmm. let you escape. So there's no. Which like... I think is the same in Alien. Yeah, it's quite an oppressive and like non-stop kind of drone in the score. But what what I think is interesting about that is I think the drone works in kind of um, it creates a sense of like space in in within the film, uh, but also like dread uh, and more specifically dread in mundanity. And, and I think oh, if you nice look point. at Kill List as like a kind of British kitchen sink drama with a lot of normal life mundanity and Alien as a film about a bunch of blue collar workers doing a mundane job, because that's what it is. They're space truckers, effectively. And so I think that the scores work in a similar way to kind of create this sense of dread in the mundanity of what's happening to them and the fact that horrible things can happen to normal people like us, the viewer. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that drone, it, it, it's it's oppressive mundanity, right? It's kind of, it, it's the horror mm. in that kind of, because also there's these, there's these kind of themes of, in Kill List and Alien, of kind of the way in which kind of corporate society or capitalist society kind of oppresses us in like horrific ways. So in Kill List, there's this whole thing of like, basically the, the kind of pointlessness or meaninglessness that uh, Jay finds in kind of our way of life. You know, like, as opposed to, like, he, you know, he doesn't see the point. He has no joy in life left anymore. And in Alien, there's the ways in which kind of corporations will throw you under the bus in order for their own personal gain. Yeah. So they're they're willing to, they they deem the crew expendable as long as they can save the alien itself and study it. Yeah, yeah. And Um, uh, so, yeah. um, He, as, as as a provider, there's a lot of the kitchen sink stuff comes from him not being able to be a traditional, uh, provider for, for the family mm. and uh, you could say he was emasculated god's sake no you couldn't <laughs> i i wondered why you were smiling for about three minutes there and i was like i'm not gonna let you jump in i'm gonna finish my quite good point here before god's sake because i there was can't a... believe you got had that little smile from that <laughs> no, i could have gone twice because i was gonna go oh typical masculine masculine te- tendencies to be the provider Jesus. <laughs> sorry carry on <laughs> so yeah so, so I think there's a link there anyway and so, so I, was, I felt quite vindicated when I saw that um, you know when I saw that Williams had, had kind of dropped Jerry Goldsmith as a, as a sort of reference on his, on his work and um, and so yeah I think the droning I mean I'm not 100% because I'm not a, you know a musicologist or, a, or an audiophile or anything like that but the droning on the score for Kill List sounds a bit like what I think could be a hurdy-gurdy which I think is like a kind of old school kind of folk instrument that also creates oh. a dr- drone in the sense like you so it, you create a drone by turning a crank oh, and okay. then with your other hand you hit keys on the side that affects the drone so it's basically the same principle as woodwind like you know you blow air through a thing oh, yeah, yeah. and then you change your fingering on the holes to change the pitch of the what the air being blown <laughs> out and so the yes come <laughs> sorry. on be mature <laughs> sorry I tried but then you can't go you, you're like <laughs> Fingering into the holes and then you blow out the other end. I yeah, was like, yeah. oh, come on, you can't do that to me. <laughs> so, yeah, so basically I think, yeah, that creates kind of a drone anyway. And then, and then you you know, you affect the kind of pitch of, of the note with the keys. So, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting score in that kind of, I would say there's elements of folk. I would say there's elements of avant-garde. And I would say there's elements of, there's slight elements of kind of traditional score. But yeah, I would say kind of avant-garde and kind of folk. And I would also say actually ambient kind of stuff as well. And so you can see, I would say like the kind of, yeah, the folk stuff is interesting. I mean, I'll get to that a bit later, but I'll start with like kind of the, I think the, the it's quite a bit of avant-garde music in it in terms of like kind of when you think about the, um, there's a lot of kind of strings just continually plunging, but not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. There's not like a kind of build up and then a afterwards or anything like that. It, it, it's all just kind of plunging to nothing. And then they'll come back in again and just plunge again. And then they'll come back in again a bit later and just plunge down again like that. And there's and there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of like really intense kind of drum rolls that then lead into like just crashing the cymbals and hi-hats. But like, you know, it, it's kind of odd timings. There's a lot of just like the drums will just come in and just oh, yeah. kind of Isn't stuff as well? the strings really... kind of 
I went straight to that, that some of that music. That's well done. Yeah, and um, there's also elements. I think there's sounds being played backwards. I think there's some oh. backwards drum stuff oh, really? when I was listening That's to. Cool. I think there's some kick drums and some toms maybe going uh, being played backwards. And I think there's a bell as well, like a you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a bell being struck, and then I think that is put backwards into the score, which obviously gives it that kind of oh, cool. level of avant-gardeness. Yeah. Also, it might be to do with. Um, Ben Wheatley saying, I think um, it's some things you told me about that. It's like a, it's a film that like, it's mirrored like there's some sort of yes. There's like a symmetricality in the kind of narrative. So yeah, maybe it's something to do with like I don't know putting something backwards. Maybe because you can yeah. read the film backwards or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you play the score backwards, the parts that are backwards will be forwards, and the parts that are forwards will be backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially, potentially. I, I don't know. It's just a little. Thing. Yeah, no, no. There definitely. I think there could be an element of that. And then obviously, yes, yeah, so you've got the kind of. I would say the drone obviously is the large part of the the kind of um, the kind of ambient ambience kind of stuff. Um, but what? Yeah, I mean, where we'll get to sort of the meat of the, dis- the discussion about the score is in folk elements. And so I think the whistling is obviously something that is probably worth drawing attention to first. That was so haunting. That's probably the. I reckon that's the most haunting part for me of the soundtrack was mm-hmm. the whistling. It was so like there's something really unsettling about a whistle. Yeah, it really comes through. I don't know just what just a lone whistle. Yeah, it's it feels menacing, and I don't mm. know why. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It just feels like it feels like someone th- something when someone's whistling, something's about to happen. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense out of context. I know what you mean. I, I, yeah, I definitely get what you mean. Yeah, yeah, it feels very intimate as well. The way that the whistle is like recorded, it feels very close to the mic. You can hear the kind of. And it's not a perfect whistle either. There's a lot of like, it's not someone who's like a brilliant whistler. It's a very normal whistle that kind of wavers and, you know, there's, yeah. And it feels, it, it, when you listen to it, especially with headphones on, it feels like you're almost having someone whistle into your ear. Like it's, it's, it's an odd experience. Um, it's kind of sadistically whimsy, whimsical because of like the setting that it's being, like, this is not a film that needs like to have whistling and it's people like just being brutally hacked to death. Yeah. And you've got like some whistling. It feels like sadistic. Yes. Yeah. 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 But yeah. So what I think is, is interesting is that there's a big kind of, there's a big kind of influence on this film and, and the kind of the imagery in it and stuff from like pagan culture and kind of like folk kind of elements of kind of a burgeoning genre that I just discovered recently called folk horror. Well, I say burgeoning genre, it, it, it's actually, it was coined in sort of the 2000s, I think. And then Mark Gattis drew attention to it in his history of horror from the early 2010s. But yeah, there's a real movement back towards folk horror, especially with a lot of A24 films, with stuff like The Witch, um, Midsummer, uh, and then obviously a lot of Ben Wheatley's work, like A Field in England, Kill List, and, and there's, a, there's a lot more that I could pull out, but I'm not going to waste time here, but... Um, yeah, so I, I think the the pagan and folk influences on the score, I think, do tie into the themes of the film, especially in, in the sense of either the brutality and violence and the way that violence begets violence and it's all a circle and, and kind of, if, you know, if you you can't sort of inflict it without will it, uh, without kind of expecting to receive some back. And I feel like it could perhaps also be a factor of the kind of... It could tie into the kind of unknown factor of the cult and their plans because of, like because of the pre-enlightenment connotations and like the lack of knowledge and clarity on things out of your remit in like a kind in like the, like an era where people would subscribe to paganism or whatever that folk kind of influence and like the pagan music reminds us of that and that ties into how we know nothing about the cult throughout the whole oh, film yeah, that's nice that's a good take you know what i mean yeah. so um like the fact that we get the strange symbol by the cult right at the start of the film it's literally the first opening of the film is is the symbol their symbol being scratched onto the screen yeah um and i think where it starts to get really interesting is when you look at the idea of like folk as the kind of antithesis of modern or if you look at kind of folk music as the antith- antithesis of like musical modernity yeah. um it stands to reason we'd be fearful of it like something else that should be kind of long dead like zombies or vampires oh, or whatever yeah. Um, and especially again when we look at kind of stuff like paganism and kind of our folk traditions I feel like there's a definite willing rejection of it in our modern society and I think deep down it kind of reminds us of like where we've come from and kind of what we still are at our core in a lot of ways well there's that conflict between like Jay's kind of blue collar kind of post industrial revolution work hours kind of that that idea of his, his sort of like strained like he's sort of shackled by modernity and then there's that 
it's then it's then in contrast with like the freedom of pagan well freedom of paganism and that like it's it's a natural as paganism is kind of or the pagan cult is the villain technically mm. in this film as it paganism is is modernity's natural enemy yeah yeah so that's a bit that's a bit poncy, but no 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 yeah no i like yeah definitely i agree and i think um i think what's also interesting is when you look at folk horror and in particular things like the wicker man which um kill list directly references um with the book that um jay carries around with him as they go from hotel to hotel doing their hits and stuff like that um and a lot of folk horror is about outside of them um especially um the wicker man kind of the main character in that who goes to the island um he's very much an outsider because he's a christian and they they celebrate paganism and so yeah i think a lot of folk horror is about that but i think kill list stands in contrast to most folk horror because it's actually about belonging i think a lot of it ties into our fear of belonging to something more violent and primitive than what we think we are now and and there's a lot of illusions drawn to the ways in which kind of our modern society is actually more similar to our kind of what we think of as primitive or violent kind of pre-enlightenment society than we would like to actually like address like consciously um and so yeah i think like if you look at Kill List, it's about belonging to like this vile, like Jay belongs to this violent primitive cult at the end. He, he gets crowned as like their new presumable, presumable kind of leader. Yeah. And he shows basically no reaction. He, he, he yeah. cuts off his last ties to like normal kind of society in spoilers when he kills his wife and kid. Yeah. And he belongs to this cult. And I think a lot of folk horror is actually about succumbing and being victimized by something more violent and primitive because we are an outsider to it. Oh, nice. Um, and yeah. so I think the folk music in this, in like the film score, whilst it is a high art, is ultimately familiar to us in its use of kind of basic instruments and sounds like whistling, bells, strings, oh, yeah. drums, um, and like vocalizations as well. And yeah. uh, it doesn't have much like virtuosic kind of solos or flares. And I think in that way, because of that familiarity, it kind of incriminates us in it too. It reminds us of the world that like Kill List is set in the world that we do inhabit. Like, we are Gal, we're forced to partake in, in the modern world's sacrifices for the greater good, in the same way that the cult throughout the film sacrificed other people for the greater good as well. The greater <laughs> nice. good. So good. Um, you know, so, yeah, it, it. I think the score kind of really works in tandem to the themes of that film of, yeah, kind of, you know, it reminds us that actually a lot of stuff that goes on the film, whilst horrific, is actually much closer to home than we would like to think in the same ways that kind of pre-enlightenment behaviors and kind of pagan behaviors are as well you know we we we, we're so desperate in modern society to distance ourselves from from ideas of kind of paganism and tribalism and stuff like that but ultimately a lot of the behaviors that we look down on have basically just shifted form um and you can kind of see that in the film with like gal's girlfriend when they're at the dinner table and she talks about her job in human resources or whatever um and she about how she is basically responsible for firing people yeah, and she yeah. says to she she tells them that when they're all having their kind of menial chat over dinner, getting to know one another, um, she uh, Gal's girlfriend says, "Yeah, I you know I work in human resources. I basically hire and fire people when there's like extraneous manpower in departments or whatever." And she says, oh, you know, it's not personal." And uh, Jay says to her, "Well, you know, I'm sure they take it personally, and their families do as well." And she's like, "You know, in the business world, there's a everything's part of a grand plan. It's it's not you can't look at it on like an individual level." And I think. That obviously show, that's the ruthlessness of the business world, but when you look at it, the pagan cult operates in a similar way. They yeah, are killing yeah. people in the service of their aims. Yeah, yeah. And so ultimately, what really is the difference? Yeah. Where's 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 where you know we're supposed to be? We we like to think we're more civilized, but people still get laid off every day and made redundant. People end up on the streets. People are killed unjustly. Yeah, yeah. So like, really, are we any different at all? Uh, so yeah, also interesting about the score, this will probably be my last point about it, um, it's one continuous piece of 20 minute music, and that's it. I listen, I listen to it online, oh, right. okay. and it, it's not a bunch of tracks, you know, it's not track one, track two, track three, it's one 20 minute track. And so basically the way it was used in the film is like, they didn't just take tracks and put them over scenes, they had to chop parts out of this 20 minute piece of music and put them, you know, chop and cut them up and put them in the film when appropriate. Okay. And... Uh, Found some interesting stuff in that. I, I found an interview with um, with Jim, the composer, talking about the merits of both kind of the ideas of improvisa- improvisational and composition-based scores and talking about how kind of the ideas of like bar structure and time signatures work when you're editing a film and what editing the music into the film. 
So he talks about the idea that if you use a 4-4 time signature with like an 8-bar kind of, you know, structure, like a classic pop song kind of thing, um, the score can be really truncated when it's cut in and out of the film because you haven't got that natural flow. You have to kind of cut to the rhythm. You know what I mean? Um, And so he talks about kind of the, how how that can basically lead to it being very truncated. And so composers like Bernard Herrmann, for example, they steered clear of composed melodies for that reason in their scores. A lot of their stuff was very, was improvised basically. Um, and uh, Jim says he gets around it because he actually does subscribe more to compositional based stuff rather than improvised but he says he gets around it by using time signatures that drift away from the obvious like those used in traditional folk a lot okay. of time signatures used in that kind of music is not in like kind of you know your, oh, your normal yeah. kind of 4-4 four, four yeah, time yeah. signatures or whatever and I think that explains how his 20 piece 20 minute piece of music can be cut in and out of the film because it's in an editorially freeing time signature oh okay yes and uh so yeah, and the score is also symmetrical, like the film's narrative. So the score begins and ends with the whistling. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and Wheatley that. has mentioned how the film was symmetrical because you know you look at you know the sword fight scene where Shell has her kid on her back at the start, and they have a play fight with yeah. foam swords, and then at the end of the film, she has her kid on her back and is covered in a cloth, and her and Jay have to fight, and he kills his wife and kid unknowingly. Yeah, I, I, there's there's one bit of sync as well in this, uh, which is um, by uh, Joan Armour Trading. Yes, it is. Um, it could have been better. It could have been better by Joan Armour Trading. And that, that's interesting because she's also a folk artist, but also Joan Armour Trading is black. So she's uh, she's an outsider to an outsider art form. Yeah. So yeah, basically in conclusion, uh, Kill List, yeah. Uh, if you've got the stomach for something sort of pretty grim and dark and horrible, it's it's really, really good. I would definitely recommend it and the rest of Ben Wheatley's work, with the exception of maybe his two episodes of Doctor Who, because they're pretty piss poor. Well, I like the Doctor Who episode where people are cleaving each other's heads in with hammers. Yeah. This week, our, our, my pick is um, Us, which is Jordan Peele's 2018 follow-up to his masterpiece, Get Out. Like, as you did, Prentice Oda, you, you gave a, a quite a good overview of what your film was us it's not really possible to do that mm. uh, because i it's it's a, for me i i for it most like the shining and that like the film isn't about what happens at the end it's about like it's about the it's like a it's what happens in the film like the the bits the like set pieces in the film are like what the film's about rather than like because the film is actually would you agree the film isn't actually about concrete things so it's hard to give an overview of what it yeah, is yeah yeah so it basically as much of, of the premise that i can sort of give you without stretching into like my personal views of what i think happened mm. are that um a black family uh played by uh Peter nyongo winston duke i do not know the other two names but they've got two kids yeah uh, and they go on for a they go for a beach holiday and then being uh i end up being stalked by doppelgangers mm-hmm. that they're out to kill them i think that's basically all you need to give pretty yeah. much as, as a plot yeah yeah um compared to get out i would say it's a less strong film but the score i would say is stronger yes uh, I agree. there's definitely more uses to think so like, in mm. terms of should we quickly give a justification sorry as to why we're also doing us so there's a tv show called them dropping on the 9th of april on amazon prime um which in a lot of ways looks sort of thematically similar to jordan peele's other work and i definitely think there's a deliberate kind of attempt to tie themselves in a bit to us Right. So again, them features a predominantly black cast, and it's called them, and uh, it seems to be we're unsure at the moment whether it's kind of an anthology thing or like a one kind of whole narrative thing about kind of a black family in the suburbs, right? Yeah. And it basically seems to be like like again, um, kind of this not again. It's not like it's you know it's part of this burgeoning genre, like I'm sure you were about to mention. Sorry, um, I did kind of overwrite you, but I just wanted to make sure that the them. <laughs> link was drawn yeah, um, yeah early doors yeah I was, I was going to go the other way around yeah just say that like what i call let's call it woke horror like especially in like an american african-american context like taking the african-american experience and sort of interpolating it with like classic horror like classic horror tropes and stuff um so yeah that's coming out so yeah th- this film is very much like you can there's definitely direct influence from it and um yeah the score is this it's, much more than Get Out, music is intrinsic to this film, not just in like, oh, it really has stuff. There's plot points that revolve around musical cues, which is really, which I didn't expect Jordan Peele to do, actually. He didn't mm. me, that kind of director. Mm. But he, again, with your film, he uses the new house guy, Michael Abels, 
is or Abel's, sorry, is the is I think it might be Abel's. Is it Abel's? He um he did get out. Again, I was vindicated on this because it's like there is very this is very reminiscent of get out. There's certain things I'm like if I didn't know, I would guess this was the same guy doing the score. Um, so in the film, I would say the characteristic of this score, in terms of what makes it unique, is its its um, African its its influence of African music. Um, mm, okay. So there's a lot of like what what is the best bit of score for me is there's a lot of use of African choir music. Mm. Like there's there's there's, a, there's kids um, and adults, but got a high-pitched choir um, singing stuff in, I reckon, an African dialect. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But that's they use that continuously, and I'll come back to it later, but that's really haunting and really creepy. Mm. And there's stuff that happens at the beginning of Get Out. There's there's someone speaking, I think, Swahili or something at the beginning of Get Out. Mm. So there's that. And there's also there's also a lot of African percussion on it. Um, I, it sounds quite... It's quite plucky. I think it's like... It sounds like a caliper. Okay. But I don't think it is. But, it's, but that's my reference to it. It's kind of plucky. Mm. Um, it's like someone's sort of really horribly plucking a guitar string. Okay. Um, but going back to Abel's, he studied West African drumming at California uh, Institute of Arts mm-hmm. and sang in a predominantly black church choir. Okay. Um, so that's why I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's clearly what's been trying to... It's not just me thinking, oh, he's a black composer, he's doing African stuff. He literally is doing African stuff. Yeah. His kind of... his. The resume or CV is um, he's done a lot of like he's not done a, he's not got a huge chunky CV but it's all very kind of similar um, it seems to be quite a lot of um, a lot of it is work with black cinema so it's See You Yesterday he did um, okay nice cool he, he I like did, that film yeah he did music for um, a film called All Day and a Night which is a Netflix film written by the, one of the co-writers of Black Panther mm-hmm. uh, and he also did some like additional music for Detroit Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah, so he's he's done quite a lot of stuff that's like based around the African American experience. Mm. That's uh, a film we could do for this podcast, what, Detroit. The, yes. Mm. Oh, yeah, definitely. And Get Out, which is obviously like yeah, the score overall is quite eerie. Like it's not it's not a it's not a tense score. It's an eerie score. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, it's kind of campy. Yes, it's quite I remember, camp. I remember a lot of the score for us being quite camp in a great way. I, I love camp and I love camp. That is not a slight on, on anything in us at all. I actually really enjoyed us. Uh, yeah, but what I think is like, it takes like it takes an eeriness of say like something like Kill List or another film that has like a quite an eerie t- but it, it adds in African elements. So it's got, it's very much feels like whilst it, it's not just tackling race in this film, we're experiencing black people's horror so mm. if like if we sort of take a metaphor that the music in the film is kind of in like experienced by the the, the characters on screen, mm. I like that it's got African. I like that it's 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 like eerie music from an African perspective. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting. Part. I yeah, because yeah, you sort of touched on ideas of like what themes, the difference of the themes of us and Get Out, and yeah, like you say, like Get Out is very much an intrinsically kind of Black American story, um, whereas Us obviously has elements of being that. But yeah, there's. I mean, there's there's a lot of discussion and continues to be a lot of discussion about what us is really about. I think a lot of people tend to settle on the idea that it's actually kind of class based, right? It's, it's kind of a lot of allegories of class, yeah. class and poverty and the kind of the forgotten people, you know, who the basically presumably the underclass, which the the doppelganger characters in the film live in the underground. So it kind of works as an allegory for the underclass and the forgotten, the starving and the homeless and stuff like that in America. And so I'd assumed that what you were saying about kind of the African instrumentation and stuff like that on the score wasn't necessarily actually something that ties into the themes, but was a kind of deliberate kind of, um, was instead a deliberate kind of just rejection of the fact of like kind of Western normative scores. Yes. So a lot of like Western scores, obviously in general use Western instrumentation, specifically kind of orchestras with you know, string string orchestras and 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 you know, kind of tra- the traditional setups of those in the West. Yeah. And the score for this wasn't necessarily to tie into the themes or like kind of because it's seen through the eyes of black characters, yeah. but more just that these are men who are clearly attuned to ideas of, like you say, wokeness and kind yeah. of re- redress and kind of the balances of these sorts of things in the industry. And so they've just said, let's let's just include this because why not? Yeah, like yeah. why should we do a normal like a western normative kind of thing in the way that kind of you know why not why not include some kind of stuff from another because like yeah like you say the kind of 
the allegory in this film isn't so much about race as it is about class. Um, which, again, I don't think also, I don't think that ne- uh, negatively impacts the strength of the score. Um, I still think the score's great. Yeah. And what's quite interesting, there's a, there's, a, there's a piece of music that is kind of the quintessential distilling of, of the elements I've talked about, uh, which is called Anthem. It's, it's the first track on the soundtrack. And that is like, um, it's basically like the unofficial, it might be official, I didn't read enough into it. As I said, there's doppelgangers throughout the film and they, they're referred to as the tethered. Mm. Um, and they they kind of they're kind of like sort of Frankenstein's monsters for for one of a better phrase like versions of these characters like yeah. they're these they're I think people. Frankenstein's a great point of comparison okay I was thinking that earlier when you were thinking of things to reference obviously Get Out is a big one and I would say Frankenstein is another one um, but um, yeah so it's that 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 piece of music and that the African choir it's very kind of it's it's very kind of it's quite quiet for most of the film it's just And it's got really quick, it's like this eerie kind of creeping sense of like, oh, this is really odd, I don't like this. Mm. But then when they finally break into the house, um, it gets really loud. It's the loudest it's in the film. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of like heralding their arrival. And it's like, it's kind of their unofficial motif. Because mm. it's not called like the tethered, like it's not called the tethered on the soundtrack. So it's not definitely like, it's not definitely a motif for them. But I think it kind of is cause, because of how it's used. Yeah, and then there's also another point I really, I, I, I really, I really liked. Um, it's a little bit of a reach from me, but um, it's talking of Get Out. Um, in Get Out, um, Chris um, goes goes and wanders around um, his girlfriend's parents' house, and all through that, there's weird little bits of harp. Yes, uh, yeah. and like weird little sort of um, stings of like um, staccato violin that goes, and it's like a lot of that weird sort of stuff and. In this film, whenever like a black child goes wandering off on their own, um, that very similar music plays. Okay. In in this film, so I think I don't know, given the backdrop of not to get <laughs> going to get quite political here, of the backdrop of these films being made on the back of Armored Arbery, on this is Armored Arbery was after, but Trayvon Martin and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the list is. Michael, yeah, we don't need to go through the whole list. Old, yeah. yeah, but but specifically, black Americans who were killed whilst on their own in a neighborhood they shouldn't be in mm. that idea of like that seemingly like innocuous innocuous thing on screen in a black gaze is is kind of tense tension inducing mm-hmm. like someone walking around the ground of a house or quite an idyllic house shouldn't be shouldn't be panic inducing but it is from the black gaze and in yeah. this although this obviously isn't about race i feel like the music kind of initiates that you know as a black person you should be very it, overly careful to not wander off on your own mm-hmm. um so i'm taking the reins a bit here but i have <laughs> um it's your, it's your bit. yeah um feel free to take the reins mate um and then what uh what's the other thing that's really interesting? yeah there's a there's a and this kind of crosses over between score which is stuff made for the film and sync which is um at the beginning of the film the the uh, um, main character called Adelaide played by Peter Nyong'o and there's a kid as there's a flashback it starts with a flashback of her as a child and she's walking through this hall of mirrors and uh, yeah she she's whistling um, Incy Wincy Spider okay very badly I hasten to add like a kid but like it's it's almost unrecognisable as Incy Wincy Spider mm. um, and she's walking through this hall of mirrors and then after a while she hears it back mm. and we're not sure whether that's echoed or not we I, you know watching it first time around you think oh it's echoing but then um, as we'll see her doppelganger has managed to find her way up into this also into this hall of mirrors so she's also she's also uh, whistling the same tune back to her because she's almost learning it she's learning it through like like you know how, how people do learn things yeah and I thought it was really interesting that then fast, fast forward to like when we first meet adult, 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 uh, adult Ted, Ted Adelaide, we she's she whistled the first her first thing is she's whistling that. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, still quite badly, mm. still quite badly, but I just thought it was really interesting, like that. I, I thought it had a point about um, it's kind of a childhood trauma thing. She she's ne- um, I'm going to spoil it now because it will help me. So we find out that actually, it cuts away from when they meet each other. The two young girls meet each other, and it turns out that. The, the, the tethered version th- throttles and drags the, the 
the, the sort of above world Adelaide and swaps places with her. Mm-hmm. So when the sort of real Adelaide comes back, she's kind of whist- she's whistling that as a kind of reminder to the to the doppelganger of like what she stole from her, like her childhood. Right. Yeah. It's like a it's a reminder of like yeah. So I just thought it was quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about the score for? No, it's been a long time since I've seen us, actually. Probably, you know, since the last time we watched it together. So, um, yeah, I don't really remember it super well. I think I have one more point before I go into some, some really interesting stuff about Sync. Because mm-hmm. um, this has way more Sync than Get Out does. Get Out only has um, Redbone in it. Um, oh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a really nice bit where... Um, well, the, the bit in the film wasn't nice, but um, when they're all kind of trying to escape from their doppelgangers, there's a lot of, like, really... There's like the it's kind of inferred that the doppel doppelgangers are slightly more strong, yeah, are slightly stronger somehow. Although I'm not that's kind of one of slight f- faults of the film is that they kind of um, they're kind of inconsistent with that. Yeah, but um, but that, that's kind of in the tradition of a lot of horror, I'd say yeah. as well, where like kind of if you look at them as like kind of the serial killers, serial killer like you know the kind of serial killers in the uniforms, like the jumpsuits that they're in, are seemingly invincible super yes. strong everything until they're needed not to be yeah yeah yeah. like michael myers in the halloween films can smash through a door and survive being shot in the head you know what yeah. i mean so it's so it's that kind of yeah it, 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 it's that level of that until it's convenient for them not to be yeah so it, it could be a conscious decision because as we know peel is a is an absolute scholar of horror so yeah um, so there's like some really heavy like drums and this, it gets quite like like there's kind of a lot of like interval it's like heavy intervals like to start like real like sounds like heavy footsteps the whole score kind of it's like sort of there's drums and also the the cello the cellos also do it it's just like it's sort of sharp like um, sharp rhythmical bits of score mm. to sound like like the big characters like the the doubles of like Winston Duke's character who's a big guy and Tim Heidecker's character who's also big guy mm-hmm. shows how like the threatening of them okay and that brings like okay so the, there's something really exciting to talk about because you you mentioned this to me uh, a couple of days ago and i had to bite my tongue because it's it's it, it, it's i think i've picked up on it now have since then right so this is presumably i'm gonna put my guess forward yeah. and tell me if i'm correct yeah the creepy start from the start of i've got five on it the song yeah uh, they've incorporated that into the score right yeah that yeah. kind of dun 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 kind of thing the the piano kind of thing is part of the score of the movie right yeah so i would say the featured song in this in this film is i got five on it by lunas um sort of a sort of cypress hill-esque 90s kind of old hip-hop band mm. um and yeah they, their song plays multiple times in the film and in the trailer for this film they had um they used it and they used they, they interplayed it with michael abel's kind of scratchy violin and like the textbook um post inception dirge yeah the goes, dun, dun. Yeah. The, the, but it, it makes it incredible oh yeah that's ruined the sound wave <laughs> <laughs> levels is absolutely crazy there um yeah so like but what happens is that it was so popular i i, I read this so it was so popular in the trailer that they incorporate it into the film oh. um so i mean it is really good yeah so i think i'll talk about the the original first and now talk about the tethered version which that's what it's called on the soundtrack it's called the tethered version cool. which is really cool cool yeah tethered mix actually i think it's called oh. um so the original film yeah it, it comes on in the car when adelaide and her family are on the way to the beach um and it's 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 notable for, it's for two reasons personally is that one adelaide tries to get her son to like click in time to the music and um uh, he, she's offbeat when she's teaching him to click mm. Um, which kind of it's like a hint to her being the tethered version yeah it's the t- t- the hint to her not being like yeah it's something not being quite right but you don't pick it's so it's not obvious but once you once you pick up on it yeah she's out of sync which is interesting yeah um and also another little this is a speculative point a little bit but the song is about splitting splitting two things it's like i think the whole idea is about drugs the song is about drugs and it's like mm-hmm. it's like i think it's about how you split like the, the dope or whatever once you get from like Whatever, and it's just that I read it's something something to do with splitting between two, which is obviously in the film. It's it's revealed that two bodies are sharing one soul, kind of thing. Right, right, yeah. So I yeah. thought that I don't know. This is a very opaque reference. Like, 
Yeah. So if it's like you get a ten bag and each body gets five. Yeah. Each yeah, I got five. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole idea. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that might be a little little Easter egg kind of for Dawn Tail to do. Probably. That. Probably. Yeah, and then the tethered version, I can't with it. I'm really proud of this point. Um, <laughs> is that um, it plays uh, in during like the final confrontation between Adelaide and her, well, the tethered Adelaide and her, and the original, mm-hmm. um, who's who's known as Red. The original is known as Red. Yeah. Um, and like there's two there's two bits of the score which I think kind of encapsulate something quite poetic in that there's some really nice sort of abrupt sort of violin strokes that go, dip, 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 which is quite elegant. And then there's like the dirge underneath. And whenever Red Adelaide uh, moves in the fight, it seems to be with the, it seems to be with the, the nice violin. Um, oh, okay. And the dirges kind of soundtrack when, well, when we watch The main Adelaide, who is the original tethered Adelaide. Yeah, yeah. We see her go from like, we think that the Red Adelaide is like the, 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 the savage in River Commodore, the primitive, and she's the evolved. But we watch as that flips and everything yes. and so every time it, it does that dirty rumble she becomes more and more manic yeah in her actions and her movements and becomes inc- increasingly like sort of animalistic mm. it's really impactful mm. it is yeah she yeah she's she's quite scary in that fight at the end when she kills when she when the adelaide who is originally the tethered adelaide kills the original adelaide who is now the one who seems to be tethered yeah yeah uh when she kills her at the end, yeah, she kind of grunts, doesn't she? She grunts. She like almost animal. roars, basically. She like kind of like cuts her throat or something. Oh, she breaks her neck. Breaks her neck, yeah. She impales her with a poker, and then it, and then she's still kind of bleeding and out, and she just sort of cracks her neck. Yeah, and then she's like or something like that. She kind of yeah. grunts or like almost like roars after she does it. Also thought of another great Easter egg. Just literally thought of it. The idea that I don't know if you remember, she's handcuffed for, for, from basically half halfway through the film. Oh yeah. And so in that fight. She's tethered. She's literally tethered. Right. Her arms are literally tethered. Right. I just thought of that. Yeah. Oh, again, another another bit. Only on second watch that I realise um, it makes an already brilliant bit of um, score, like up sync, even better. So um, the film ends uh, with a very dramatic, like panning over like the hills of America, and like there's like the hands across America, like these te- all the tethers are tethered have risen up mm. under like weirdly trying to do like this hands across america thing yeah which is a reference to the old hands across america campaign right the old like it's like an old campaign that they actually did in america to try and end poverty right it was like a charity driven thing but it was a huge failure yeah it was a huge failure yeah it kind of ended up losing more money than they got in donations or whatever yeah most of it went on like just paying for the stunt yes um, yeah which is a bunch of people all holding hands for miles and miles and miles yeah and it's a really impactful way because it, it plays um Le Fleurs by Minnie Ripperton. Yes, yeah. Uh, and it's really, it's really, it's quite dramatic, it's not on that sort of um, big sort of um, string, like soul with strings underneath. It's really nice and sweeping, it's quite mm. dramatic. Mm. But actually, you think, oh, well, it's just a cool little bit of sync that, um, that, that either the music, like the music supervisor or Jordan Peele's overseen. But actually, in the advert at the beginning, um, you hear that there's an advert for Hands Across America. And there's a digitised version of Love Le Fleurs by Minnie Ripperton oh, on the advert. Nice. So it's a callback to like the first thing that, that Adelaide has seen. The whole idea is that the reason she's doing that is because it's the like the last thing she kind of remembers before she was taken. Right. Okay. And so that music plays is like a good like reflection of that. That's cool. Yeah. I'd never picked up on that. It's really hard. To, I don't know how I picked up on it second time around, but I just I guess because I've seen it before quite recently. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, a bit of cool bit of trivia. She, Minnie Ripperton is Maya Rudolph's mum. Oh my god! Wow. Yeah. yeah. She uh, she married uh, Richard Rudolph and um, gave birth to Maya. That's really cool. The SNL um, comedian. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Sketch comedy. Yeah, which is a cool, which is mad. Yeah. Nice. And then yeah, there's there's um I think there's oh there's quite a lot there's quite a little hefty soundtrack. So the two I think the two bits I really want to get in above anything else um is there's there's two tracks played very similar like close to each other which i which i like so um good vibrations by the beach boys mm-hmm. is played and like i really like it because obviously um the beach Boys are from california and it's set in california yeah so that's a nice thing and also 
Tim Heidecker's character plays like basically the, he's basically white Winston Duke. He like he's like the white, slightly more affluent version of what Winston Duke wants to be. And it's throughout the film, Gabe, who his his character really wants to be uh, Josh, who's that character. He kind of wants to be. He wants the car like his. He wants the house like his. Yeah. Um, but he's kind of like quite slovenly. Like the Josh is quite slovenly, and he's like really lazy, mm. and he just wants to have like a like a real just holiday. He doesn't want to do anything. He's literally just sitting there like a lump with some whiskey. And, like, his wife's trying to get him to, like, check because she thinks she hears something outside and he just won't do it. And, yeah. And he, he says, uh, Ophelia, um, play Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. And, and like, the Good Vibrations play. But what I find it quite funny is, like, it's it's almost aggressive. It's like almost post-mon aggressive um, relaxation. It's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm by the sea. I'm by, like, the sun. Like, I'm going to listen to Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys. Yeah, to give me good vibes yeah 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 and it's like yeah i'm not this is like the ultimate yeah you can't sort of like harsh my buzz if i'm like yeah so yeah i find that quite interesting that's yeah and also i think there's an element of because the beach boys kind of symbolically they very much represent the kind of affluent white teens of the 60s yes like that's yeah. what they were and that's who a lot of people who were listening to them were and so to have their songs soundtrack this kind of scene where we see this very comfortable, very affluent white family in their huge house. Yes. You know, and then and then they, they proceed yeah. to be sort of killed off. It kind of draws those, you know, links between like, I don't know, you kind of compromise something in a certain way when you become that level of kind of affluent and comfortable. Which and is consumerist. Which kind of plays into the ideas of like, what, what, is that, what, have, what have other people got to have gone through? For you to be able to be in that position, yeah, which is yeah, yeah. the tethered come and take, basically. Yes, they come. If and... they represent the underclass, it's them coming up to take some of the resources from the affluent yes. who have taken it away from them. Yeah, which which brings me on to a, a nice, nicely actually. Thank you to like yeah. At that point, the whole point is there is rustling because like yeah, they're they're tethered. Their tethered with them comes in and just literally just brutally murders all of them mm. like just like with scissors and just like completely obliterates them and what i think when i rewatched it i was like oh my god if 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 john peel the music supervisor has done this the reason i think they've done they are fucking geniuses so as, as played off for laughs um elizabeth moss's character who plays um darley who's like the the mum yeah. says um, josh's Ophelia, wife josh's wife yeah ophelia Call the police, and then Ophelia goes playing "Fuck the Police" by N.W.A. <laughs> and then basically, yeah. So that plays, and it's brilliant for so many reasons. One is just funny. It's funny as it fuck is funny. to watch like a family of what? Well, good. I don't want to. Sound, <laughs> I don't want to sound like a panther. Wow. <laughs> watch this, like <laughs> that. Get what's so wrong? <laughs> to watch this sort of comfortable white middle class family just get absolutely taken apart to like end up with the police it's quite interesting yeah like and the whole the whole idea is like on multiple levels this this actually works in such a brilliant way yeah. so the whole idea is the whole don't worry everyone Jules, the berets come back off <laughs> he's put the ak down the berets come back off made um, an appearance in a second um yeah and um <laughs> sorry the letters that we had we were doing fan base um we need a bit of controversy to the fan <laughs> um basically the whole idea is like they're like five like that if we're taking this not as a black thing like they're all like nwo pretty poor mm. so they're like we're coming to get a pager and money and all that mm. and you're not going to stop us and we're gonna like there's going to be blood they literally say that there's going to be bloodshed and stuff yeah, yeah, yeah. so like that whole, that whole idea is like literal in the lyrics i like the underclass coming up to take it mm. um also like the idea of like both of these bands are from california Yes, yeah, so like, it represents the disparate ends of the kind of poverty in California, one of yeah. the richest states in America, and yet it also has massive levels of homelessness. Yeah, yeah. Some of the worst levels of homelessness in the entirety of America. I think a lot of homelessness, homeless people are actually shipped into California from other states because yeah. of the weather. Oh, you could, They yeah. can be out, outside oh, more yeah, with yeah. less risk to their health because it rains less and it doesn't get as dangerously cold. Yeah. So a lot of homeless people from other states actually get bussed to California, I think. Yeah. But yeah. And so yeah, so it's like it's I was gonna say yeah, so it, and it, it plays as pretty much as soon as the black family come in to help. Mm. Um, so it's quite it's quite interesting and like uh, it shows like the oh, there's another point while I try and remember the other point in that there's a whole thing about the police being quite um, inept in this film mm-hmm. because they 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 um, phone the police when the the um, the, uh, the Adelaide family call the police when they when the tether first show up yeah and yet they just never appear. 
Mm. And it's, there's a whole thing in America about how like black people, um, although harassed by the police, also the when they put in nine one one calls, they've statistically wait had to wait way longer than white families do. Yeah. Um. So that's also fuck the police in a very literal way of like the police never help us. Yeah. Um. So literally fuck the police. Mm. To white gays, SoCal is like lovely in in hot rods and like girls and like good times and stuff. And yeah. Like, but to a black family, it's like. Well, not to black family, to black people, it re- it represents Co- Compton and Oakland and like police brutality and like, but it just shows that disparate. Although it's not, you know, again, it doesn't. The LA riots, LA riots, Ron, yeah. So like, it shows like the duality in America. I guess going into that theme where one, in in the same place, like two people can have such a vast, different experience of the same place. Yeah, and, you know, like that's the whole thing about the film that like, the tethered and like. I don't know. I mean, in one of the uh, law dumps, they talk about how there's an inversion of like whenever the people are on the surface have something good happen to them, something awful happens to the people on the bottom, and it's almost in that sense you can do that in a race way. Mm. Like it, it for, for you know, like whilst all those great things are happening for, for for what the Beach Boys are talking about, black people are experiencing what NWA are talking about. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've got too much more to say. Yeah, so I think um, um, I think if you haven't seen us, which um, hopefully, I mean, I mean, you probably hopefully you have. Um, but yeah, I think the score is excellent in terms of its like its, its use of music for storytelling purposes. Yeah, uh, and I think yeah, the, again, that's why I think the film doesn't work as a as a whole narrative. I think it works in little set pieces throughout. Yeah, definitely. Which I think then also help with the music as well because mm-hmm. yeah, uh, it's. It's quite discordant and eerie. It's got quite a disparate mix. Like, the sync that's used is quite disparate, which I think helps to, like, some of the disparate themes as well. Yeah. Yeah, stylistically, Us is, is awesome. Yeah. Whilst it may not kind of bring what Get Out brought to the table, it's still it's still a great watch, even though it's not of the same level of quality as Get Out overall. Stylistically, it's really cool, yeah. I'm really looking forward to what Jordan Peele does next, regardless of, like... You know, some people view us as a relatively a flop compared to Get Out in terms of the success of its kind of messages and themes and stuff. Yeah. And then obviously there's been quite a mixed reaction to his reboot of The Twilight Zone as well and stuff. But, you know, regardless of that, the ideas and themes that he tries to get across and, and the people that he brings with him, like his in-house composer to work on things, and stuff like that, all of those kind of elements, you know, if he can turn up something like Get Out, hopefully will get more stuff that's of that level of quality. I'm sure he's still got plenty of great stuff with really interesting themes left in him. So. You've been listening to Sink or Swim, a podcast by Prentice Mitchell and Jules Bastano. If you want more from the pod, you can find us at Sink or Swim Pod, all one word, on Instagram and YouTube, and you can find us at Sink or Swim on Facebook. To get in touch, please send us an email at sinkorswimpod at gmail.com. You can listen to this pod wherever you find your podcasts, with full episodes and clips going off on YouTube as well. <laughs>